Um, we're in a new series. We're in a new series uh, looking at Ezra uh, and Nehemiah. And uh, so I would encourage you, uh, if you haven't already, to have a go at reading through Ezra and Nehemiah all the way through. Um, in the Hebrew tradition, they are considered one book, which is why we're moving through Ezra straight into Nehemiah as, as a series. Um, Aaron introduced the series to us last week, and today we're uh, kicking off in earnest with uh, chapter one. Uh, before I begin, though, I'd like to pray for us. Father, we ask that you would uh, speak now through your word. Lord, would you, um, by the Holy Spirit, stir our hearts, open our ears and our eyes to hear and see what you might be saying to us. Lord, would you get the glory? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Right, we're going to turn to Ezra 1. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to it. It is going to come up on the screen as well, I believe. There it is. Uh, but do turn in your Bibles to Ezra 1. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open as well. If you, if you have one with you, we're going to be sort of dipping in and out of it uh, a fair bit. So, Ezra 1. Am I sounding okay? It's a bit of an echo, isn't it? It's okay, fine. So Ezra 1, uh, verse 1. In the year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400 all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Okay, well, um, some people in this room uh, have probably been Christians a long time. Uh, some, probably for many decades. 
Uh, some may have only been Christians for quite a short amount of time. And whatever stage you're at, it's always wonderful, isn't it, to see new growth and new life. But one thing, those of us who are longer in the tooth, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, can testify to is that following Christ, being a Christian, is not always easy. It's not always smooth sailing. And sure, when we're first saved, we might experience uh, you know, the spiritual highs of relationship with God, of knowing his love for the first time, reading precious verses for the first time, maybe the words of Jesus himself for the first time. Uh, we receive prayer for the first time. We gather with other Christians for the first time. We experience times of worship, don't we, where we get lost in wonder and praise for moments. And maybe we've even been away on those kind of Christian camps and gatherings uh, where you get those kind of spiritual highs of those mass gatherings. But uh, some even in here are studying the faith or have studied the faith. They're going through ministry training. But at some point, and it might be quick and it might take a little while, we end up, don't we, at some point facing disappointment. Right, we realize, firstly, that we don't measure up. We can't do it. That those same old habits and character flaws are really hard to change. And it's also true of others. <laughs> I mean, other people also have very annoying uh, ways of doing things or beliefs about things that we would like to change, but we can't. And people don't they let us down sometimes, which uh, is difficult. And so we can find ourselves disappointed in others, disappointed in the church. The church is doing things this way, that way, and it could be better here and it could be better there. And maybe that's despite our efforts. Maybe, maybe we're not particularly trying, but we still you know, like to give our opinion and criticize. But finally we can become disappointed maybe in God himself. You know, we can say, why did God let this happen or let that happen? Fill in the gap, whatever it is. We end up jaded and disappointed and tempted to just give up. Uh, or at least maybe take it easy, give up trying, maybe hedge our bets a bit, you know, one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And so in the church, in our life as a family, in our own individual walks with God, we can end up drifting. So uh, an important question for us is how do we keep going as Christians when we do face, and we will face, and you probably have faced, disappointments and challenges of various kinds? Maybe in yourself, maybe in others, and maybe even in God himself. Well, to the readers of Ezra 1, I think it would have been much the same. Remember, what we've read in Ezra 1 is an account of how Cyrus, the king of Persia, ended the exile of God's people. And they returned to the land that was promised to their forefathers. That's the land of Abraham and of Moses and of Joshua, the land of Judah, which is in Israel. So if you think about it, the events of Ezra 1 are not written to those who made the return. Right? They're a record of what happened to the returners written for the generations that came after them, okay? So the readers of Ezra 1 are those who are now engaged in the work of rebuilding the temple of God and rebuilding the city walls and establishing a community of believers that are faithful 
to God. And so as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah, what we're going to see is that they do indeed face a number of problems. Problems from external opposition, problems from within as well, with their own sin, with their own apathy, with their own character, problems in the whole community, leaders and those following alike. And so they're going to need encouragement to keep going. They needed to be helped so they wouldn't give up. They needed to make sure they continued building the city walls, the temple, in a healthy way that's built on the faithfulness of God and not becoming cynical or becoming overcome by you know, the often underwhelming realities of life. Now, humans are story-making people. We, we tell ourselves stories. And the stories we tell ourselves are helping us to shape the future that we're building. If you look at, for example, even the, the modern West today, okay, yes, it's moved away from uh, many of its Christian foundations, but it still tells stories. Tim Keller says that the modern world is based around, as he sees it, five narratives or stories that we tell ourselves and we are told again and again and again. Now, here are just a few, just to see if you recognize anything. One is, he says, there's a kind of technology narrative or a science narrative that goes something like, all our problems will eventually yield to technological solutions if we throw enough time and money and effort at discovering them. You know, psychology, medicine, sociology, they'll all help create this great future. And of course, we look back and see the advances of science, but that's a story we tell ourselves and something that we believe in, isn't it? Or how about the history narrative? This one is particularly maybe being challenged right now, given the events of the last few days. But this idea that history's making progress, this idea that the new is better than the old and we're becoming a more compassionate, more democratic, more empowering people. Or how about the identity narrative? that our identity is discovered only on the inside, in our desires and dreams. And so our self-worth comes from the dignity we give ourselves, regardless of what others say. You know, I think it's true to say that one of society's current main heroic narratives or stories is that of the individual who stands up, right, and is true to him or herself against any kind of opposition. These are all stories we're told again and again and again. Well, I want to suggest as we dive into Ezra 1 now, we're going to look at a story written to remind the readers, the rebuilders of Jerusalem, who they are and who the God they serve is. And therefore, being centered on that story and on that reality, they're shaping what they're building. Okay? Even as they face lots of disappointments and challenges and oppositions of various kinds. So let's look at the text again. Uh, let's go back. Uh, we'll read uh, verses 1 uh, to 4 again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So we have a few questions, <coughs> don't we, uh, to answer. I mean, who is Cyrus? <laughs> who are Persia? Uh, what's this got to do with Israel? Uh, well, Cyrus, as it says, is king of Persia in verse 1. 
And Persia, who are they? Well, they're an enormous empire. Uh, in fact, they're really the ruling empire at the time of writing. I've got a map here. There we go. Uh, from the ESV Study Bible, uh, which is, shows you in the green is the Persian Empire. You can see that it extends from modern-day Greece all the way into modern-day India. It was enormous. It's basically the ruling superpower of its time. Now, where did Israel fit into all this? Well, as we learned a bit last week, Israel, 50 years or so prior to the events of Ezra 1, had been put into exile. The Babylonian Empire, led by somebody called Nebuchadnezzar, had basically invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple of God to the ground, taken all the temple vessels out of it, and shipped them off into a temple in Babylon. And to top it all off, he then took a number of people, probably their most educated people, and took them back to Babylon, the city of the Babylonian Empire. But in the year before the events we're reading about, Cyrus, king of Persia, conquers the Babylonian Empire and replaces them as the ruling superpower. And so what he's done is he's inherited lots of displaced Jews from Israel. Now what's extraordinary in this passage is what it says in verse 1. It says, doesn't it, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Do you see that? The Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. Now Cyrus's decree, it's saying, was the Lord's doing. Now, it's amazing. If you go to the British Museum, you can go and see something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is this. Um, Ruth and I, actually, we had, very kindly, Ruth's um, parents babysat the kids, and we had a day together in London. We went to the British Museum, and we saw this. I didn't know this is what we'd be uh, preaching on. It's amazing, the British Museum. You can see lots and lots of biblical history there, actually. Um, now, this is the Cyrus Cylinder, and it records uh, some of the things that Cyrus did on it. And it says, in particular, this. I'll read it out to you. It says, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for, for a long time. The images which used to live therein, that is, the idols that lived in those sanctuaries, and established for them permanent sanctuaries. And I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. Okay? So in other words, Cyrus has clearly got a kind of policy, if you like, of returning people and their gods because Babylon had created loads of refugees because they'd invaded lots of different places and, t and then taken people uh, from them. And Cyrus did this probably for, well, we don't really know why. I suppose two reasons have been suggested. One might be it was good politics. I mean, if you think about it, happy people serving their gods in their lands means less unrest and more taxes. Um, or maybe, alternatively, maybe he had a kind of religious belief that the gods of those places if they were kind of honored, would kind of bless him or something. Maybe there was a kind of religious motivation. We don't really know. What certainly doesn't seem to be the case is that Cyrus especially chose Israel, right, to return to their land above everyone else. He did this to lots of people groups, including the Jews. Yet it says it was the Lord that stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So what do we learn? I think we learn that God is sovereign, and this is something the Bible repeatedly teaches throughout Scripture, 
God rules and reigns through all kinds of dictators and all kinds of kings and presidents. And this is especially poignant given the events of the last few days. Now, what I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, is that God approves of everything that these leaders do. We know, for example, Babylon, the empire before that destroyed Israel, was an instrument of God's judgment. God rose them up and called them, it says, to fulfill his purposes, to judge Israel. But then, Jeremiah later says, he will judge them for their wickedness and their pride. And he does because Cyrus destroys them. So all I'm saying is that it's a mystery, really, but somehow God is always working through circumstances and people such that his purposes are achieved. And that's something we have to trust in. No circumstances beyond the redemptive work of God. No matter how bad things get, we can know that our God reigns. We might not see, we may not understand, but he reigns and he is working out his purposes. And then this mystery extends to us, doesn't it? If you look at verse 5, it says, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to, to rebuild the house. It's the same phrase again, stirred up. Spirit stirred up. So God also stirs the spirit of his people. God's miraculous rescue of his people includes the work of God in the hearts of his people. Unless God does a radical work in our own hearts, we cannot be saved we cannot even respond to the call of the gospel or be changed to become a more holy or loving people or even set out on anything we think God is calling us to do. So we can trust, can't we, that as we step out in faith, God is working in us and through us. So if we feel that we can't do it, we feel like it's too difficult, well, you have to remember that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God working in you and through you not just the world around us in terms of the circumstances. God is not just sovereign over that. He's also working in us. And that's hugely encouraging. So God's working through circumstances and in us. Now we see, don't we, in verse 1, if I go forward, it is here, uh, verse 1, uh, the reason that God does this, the reason that he stirs the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, it says, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And again, last week, we watched a video summarizing what that word of the law from Jeremiah is all about, 52 chapters of Jeremiah. Now, in this long prophetic book, written at the time just prior to and up to the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah repeatedly and consistently tells the people of Israel that Babylon, remember that's that empire before the Persians, are going to destroy Jerusalem as judgment for their idolatry and their rejection of God. So when he preached his message, as you can imagine, he was not very popular, there were lots of attempts to silence him, lots of attempts to stop him preaching. But of course, sadly, in the end, his word proved right. Babylon did come, they did destroy Jerusalem, and the people of God did go into exile. So in a way, the truthfulness of Jeremiah's words are kind of obvious to everyone. You couldn't deny that God had already fulfilled his word to Jeremiah. That is all except a short little bit in the middle of the book, chapters about 30 to 33, which sound a note of hope. I'm going to read now a short section from Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, starting at verse uh, 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So we, we see, don't we, that God promises that he's going to bring them back so that they dwell in safety. That's verse 37. And then in 38, he will be their God and they will be his people. Now this is one of those what Aaron described as a hyperlink uh, last week. Uh, this is a reference back to Jeremiah. It's designed to stir hope in the reader. All the prophecies of judgment had come true. Now maybe the prophecies of restoration, of safety, of the people being the people of God again, maybe that's going to come to pass. And so keeping this sense of prophetic hope is going to be really important as we work our way through Ezra and Nehemiah. So the decree of Cyrus, the return from exile, it's like, the, it's like the, if you've ever seen the sunrise and you just see the glow of the sun just as it starts to go. This is almost like what this is, this moment. It's like maybe God is going to do something amazing. He's made amazing promises. Maybe now it's about to happen. Now what do we see? We see, don't we, that the trustworthiness of God's word is clear because God has promised and then he will deliver. And we have, don't we, our Bibles, which is our rule, it's our authority, and can be trusted. I heard a story of a pastor who, he would always read, it's on a podcast I was listening to, but it's a great story. Uh, this pastor would always read, whenever the scriptures were read in service, he'd finish with, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, which is a, from Isaiah 40. And so every week there'd be the reading, and then he'd finish with, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. And this young boy went up to the pastor one day and said, why is it that every time we read the Bible, you always end with the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And he said, that's why. That's why. So that you know that truth. And I guess for us, you know, do we believe that? Are our lives saturated by the word? Do we know it? Do we read it regularly? Are we trusting in it? We were having a discussion in Explore Group this week, and someone was saying that, you know, sometimes people say, you know the Bible says, and then they actually they end up quoting a worship song. Now, um, worship songs are great, uh, and, but we need to know the word. Yeah? Um, so the word reveals God to us, the word reveals Jesus to us, and the Spirit speaks to us as we read it. Okay, let's move on, verses 5 to 11 of Ezra. Ooh. Maybe you need to go... There it is, 5 to 11. Uh, so we'll read that again, actually. We'll read 5 to 11 again. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold 
with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. I'm going to go on a bit. Uh, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, in this second section, there are lots more of these hyperlinks. And what they're all pointing to is Exodus, this idea of Exodus. If you look at verses 4 and 6, okay, if you look at verses 4 and 6, and then if you look at, uh, verse t- uh, Exodus tw- you look at Exodus 12, let me just read for you. So Exodus 12 says, this is back at the, uh, when the people of Israel are about to I- escape out of Egypt. We looked at that as a church a couple of years ago. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Ezra 1.4, it says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted with the men of his place with what? Silver and gold and goods and with beasts. And it goes on and says, besides the free will offerings. So we've got the same pattern of silver, gold, uh, and then goods. And it also says sometimes goods and costly wares as well. That's in verse 6. And then what about the phrases in verses 3, 5, and 11 of Ezra? And well, I'll particularly focus on the one in 11. If you look at Exodus 33, 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land that is going to be ultimately Israel, of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in Ezra 11, at the end, it says, All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So what is the purpose of writing it such that it reminds you of Exodus? It's been deliberately done by the author. Why? Why? I think what the author is wanting to do is is to make people see, or the generation that are reading it to see, that they are having their own Exodus. Just like the people of God, when they were saved out of Egypt under Moses... This generation is being saved and redeemed by God, only this time out of Persia. So therefore, all that goes with that great exodus from Egypt is being applied to them. Right? God has compassion on his people in Egypt. God has had compassion on his people as they are returned to Jerusalem. God is still their God, and they are still his people. The great work of salvation of God to the generation in Egypt is the same great work of salvation for them in Persia. And what are they to do? They're to rebuild the house of the Lord, it says in verse 2. That's to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord is the temple, the great temple built by Solomon. The great temple that was really just the permanent tabernacle, the tabernacle or tent of meeting, which was the tent in which God dwelt with them when they were wandering in the desert as they came out of Egypt. So it began at the exodus from Egypt. And it's the first priority in the rebuilding work of Judah and Jerusalem. They are still God's people because he will dwell with them and they will worship him. In exile, they may well have questioned that. I mean, has God abandoned them to judgment and disgrace? 
Well, now he has resoundingly said, you are my people and I am your God. And just to kind of add the icing on the cake, if you like, uh, the temple vessels, the entrance of worship in the temple. Oh, I don't know. Oh, no, I need to go back. Um, here we go. This is described in sort of verses 8. They were kept safe in Persia. These, these temple vessels are the objects that were in the temple in which people worship God. Uh, they'd been shamefully put in the temple of another god, but God had actually kept them safe because now those same instruments had probably been made possibly even all the way back to the time of Moses and used all that time. They were still able to use because they'd been kept safe. There's that continuity. You are still the people of God. God still loves them. He has rescued and redeemed them. So, okay, how does this help the original readers? Remember, the readers of this text are those generations that came after those we've just read about. They're engaged in that rebuilding work of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city walls, building a community that's centered on God, faithful to God, but they're facing problems, right? Obstacles, challenges, disappointments. So I think reminding themselves of the truths we've looked at in this passage help them to remain faithful to that rebuilding work. God's sovereignty reminds them they can overcome any obstacle, that God can use things they cannot imagine to bring about his purposes. He's working with them, around them, but also in them. That God's word can be trusted as a source of hope. It, it promises that after the exile, her fortunes will be restored. We looked at that in Jer- Jeremiah. But also there are other wonderful prophecies, like in Haggai, who's a prophet around the time of the rebuilding, says that the latter house will be greater than the former. The new temple you're building will be greater than the one that was before. Or or Isaiah, who prophesied that all nations will come into Israel and see the glory of the Lord. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. These would have been encouraging words to cling to, even if the circumstances didn't always appear to be as expected or as they wanted. So, in other words, they hadn't been fulf- all the God's words hadn't all been fulfilled yet, so they kept building in eager expectation of fulfilling, of God fulfilling what he's promised. And finally, they're still God's people. God loves them. They're a part of that great salvation story of the exodus, of salvation and deliverance of God, being part of a new exodus from Babylon that God might dwell with them and that they would be his people. It reminds them who they are. There are people redeemed from slavery to serve and worship the God who loves them and dwells with them. So again, despite any of the disappointments or problems, this truth reminds them and centers them on who they are. Okay, so how does this help us? Um, We're not in Persia. Uh, We're not stockpiling bricks and mortar to build a new house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Um, We don't have a proclamation from Cyrus or any other king, president, or prime minister, do we, to leave Persia or the UK or whatever and go and build some big building. But I would put it to you that we do have a proclamation now that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, a king of greater authority than Cyrus or any other man that's ever lived, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all creation. And this proclamation is revealed to us in his word through the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament. This proclamation is a message, and it's also a man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the reality that he is Lord. 
And he commands, doesn't he, all men everywhere to repent and turn to him. So Jesus came, I think, for two main reasons. One, revelation, and one, rescue. So Jesus came firstly as revelation. That is, he came to reveal God to us. You see, exile and exodus is this major theme in Scripture. Right? The exile in Egypt and the exodus out of Egypt up to Jerusalem is the great Old Testament story, the great salvation story of the Old Testament, which we see picked up, don't we, in our passage in Ezra 1. But you see, there's ev- there is an even more fundamental exile that humanity is cut off from God himself. We see that in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve when they're expelled out of the garden, the very presence of God, that because of our sin, we are unable now to know God. We're spiritually blind to understand who he is. And we're kind of primed, if you like. Our nature is to just serve ourselves and seek our own good and glory. Our humanity is sometimes described as being turned inwards on itself rather than outwardly towards others and God. So we can't reach out to God because we don't even know what he's like. And our hearts are corrupted and distorted. But in Jesus Christ, we see who God is. He says, doesn't he, to Philip in John, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But he came also as rescue. You see, even if we could now see who God is in Christ, we cannot save ourselves from the consequences of our sin. Our sin means that we have hearts that cannot turn themselves back to God. And the justice for our evil deeds is judgment, eternal judgment. Yet Jesus Christ lived the life in which he lived fully for God, fully for others, loving God and others perfectly. And in which he dies on the cross to receive the penalty for our sin so that we might be forgiven. And then God has what? Raised him from the dead seated him at the right hand of the Father, giving him all things in heaven and on earth to him. He is Lord. And we have to make our choice now whether we will turn to him and trust in him or seek to change our ways. Just as the people in our story had to make a decision when they heard the proclamation of Cyrus, are they going to leave behind Babylon? Difficult decision, maybe you've been there for 70 years and started to settle to go to rebuild the temple so we must make our choice now whether we will turn to him trust in him and seek to change our ways before what he comes again to judge the living and the dead and those who do not turn to him or listen to him he will send into an eternal exile away from the presence of God forever so we have to don't we I urge you We have to make our choice today. Everyone here or anyone here that's not a Christian or has never heard this before, what I'm just explaining, I would love to talk to you more about that. Please do come speak to me. But for those of us who have made that choice maybe to repent and turn to him, we have to keep turning to him. We have to keep repenting and we have to keep trusting. We have to continually return to the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of salvation that he's done for us. And as we remind ourselves of what he's done, as we saturate our minds and our hearts in the truth and the glories of the gospel of God, we will never lose heart.
we will never give up. Because we know that God has taken us from darkness and brought us into the light. So for those rebuilding the temple and the city walls in Ezra 1, remember what God has done for them would encourage the generations that followed as they faced the challenging realities of life. And we too, though we also face and have faced and will face disappointments and discouragements as we remind ourselves of what God has done. That great exodus from darkness to light, from ignorance of God to knowledge of God, from sin into righteousness, from pride to humility, from selfish ambition to love, from ultimately being cut off from God to now being loved by him and having him dwelling in us. We will have the strength to keep on going with the work that God has given us to do, to pursue love of others, to serve others, especially the poor and the sick, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to build the church. If we're going to do that as a church here and as a church across Watford and as a church across the UK, we cannot lose sight of who we are and who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. That has to be always what we cling to if we're never going to give up and if we're going to keep building. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the awesome work of salvation that you have done. We thank you that though we were blind, cut off from you, unable to know you, unable to follow you, you in your mercy came down and reached out to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us never forget that story. Let us never forget who we are as we think about building the church, as we think about coming out of the last few years of of restrictions and how we might reshape church going forward. Let us never forget what you have done for us and who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.